or no, this is your last chance. No beating around the bush. Perhaps I was talking when I should have been listening. This is the Redefined Relentless Podcast. Welcome back to Redefine Relentless. Today, I have a special guest, Dr. Snow, a previous professor of mine at Ball State University, and I learned a lot of economics in his class, and he made me read a lot of books, but that I'm thankful for in the long run, Factfulness, uh, and a couple other ones that uh, were amazing. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Dr. Snow. I appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. This should be an interesting conversation. 100%. So the topic of today is the economics of student loan forgiveness in recent news. Uh, Dr. Snow, what, what's your overall thoughts on the student loan forgiveness uh, being passed? Whenever we think about a change in public policy, as a political economist, uh, my thoughts stray to what processes were used for discussing this policy change were they truly democratic in nature? Uh, who was invited to the conversation? Who was excluded from the conversation? Uh, and, and were all the stakeholders adequately informed about the plan beforehand? Uh, so that's my big thing that I think I can contribute that is unique to the conversation. Uh, there's a lot of good policy analysis out there, and I've looked up some of that research and and been absorbing that as well. We can talk about any of that that you're interested in. But there's the, the big picture thing here is, uh, was this decision made in a democratic way? Was everybody who's going to be affected asked what they thought about it? Uh, and and were the unintended consequences uh, what kinds of unintended consequences are going to fall out of this whole business? Yeah. Yeah. I, it was always interesting. We were always taught in your class to like dig deep and it's like the surface level. And then there's a lot of things that happen, uh, which got me thinking and why I wanted to definitely have you on the po this podcast episode, um, which leads me to who do you think is going to be affected? Who's paying for the loan forgiveness? Do you think, although I think it hasn't been stated yet, who do you believe they will uh, probably try to uh, get that? Per who will be paying for it? Who do you think? So there's a couple of different ways that the government pays for things. The first way is through income tax revenues. Uh, so, so we can expect that income taxes at some point in the future, in order to pay for this and all of the other things that the government has spent money on, will have to go up. Uh, the question becomes, well, who pays taxes? It turns out that uh, a lot of the people who are who are currently paying taxes and who will pay taxes in the future are also people who are going to be benefited by this program. Not all, but many. So then for those people, so suppose you you earn you know um, a high income salary, and I'm going to say that that's $90,000. Some people will say, oh, that's ridiculously high. Some people will say, oh, that's not really very high. You know, it really matters on perspective. And, and in our world today, we've become so disassociated with people in different income classes that we really don't understand what a, a reasonable or an average income is. But suppose you're earning, I, I think I said 80 or $90,000, right? And suppose you went to college and, and you know, uh, took out student loans, a bunch of student loans. You went to an elite college and you took out a bunch of student loans. Okay, well then in the future, uh, you're going to be paying more taxes than the average person will be. 
Actually, I think it's something like 40% of Americans don't pay any income taxes to the federal government at all. Uh, they, they have enough exemptions and exclusions that they don't end up on net paying uh, income taxes. So then it'll be primarily upper income people who are paying more in taxes. And also those upper income people are the people who are going to be benefited by this program by and large. Uh, so, so a big chunk of this policy is a wash. Uh, so you'll read that this uh, program is going to cost the government between 300 and 500 billion dollars. We can't even get that estimate down right. Okay, so that that 500 billion dollars will will have to be paid for by taxes in some way. Now the other way that it could happen is that it there could be an increase in inflation. So when the government spends money that it doesn't have. Sometimes it borrows that money and sometimes it increases the quantity supply of money through actions at the Federal Reserve. Uh, and it seems like in recent years, the Federal Reserve has been by and large accommodative towards fiscal policy, which is to say that if the government, if the federal government in its fiscal policy decisions uh, wants to spend a lot more money, oftentimes in order to try to um, absorb the cost of that, the, the, the Federal Reserve will print more money. As a result, prices go up for everybody. In that case, to the, to the extent that that is true, uh, people who are facing a greater burden of inflation are going to, on net, pay more in taxes for this program and any other government program than others. So, so people who are most adversely affected by inflation are primarily people who were not planning on there being inflation, um, but also those who hold the debt. Uh, so, so people who um, loaned money out will now receive less money back in return for the loans that they made. Who, who does that affect? Well, it affects anybody that has a pension, right? Anybody that has investments in the marketplace. Uh, if, if you've got some money squirreled away, then, then inflation causes the real value of those or the nominal value of those assets to decline. Uh, you may be adversely affected by inflation in the future. So all of it has to be paid for. Um, and, and it can happen in a variety of different ways. Yeah. So, well, I, my next question was going to be, uh, will it really benefit those getting the funds? But as you said, I, I find it interesting. The ones that are benefiting are really the ones paying which leads to an interesting question. So why is why would we do this in the first place? How why would that make sense if they're just if the people that are benefiting it from uh, the most part are the ones who are paying for it? Isn't it kind of just like a circle that you're creating? It's like, well, these people have to pay, but now they're paying the taxes to pay that like this. What, how does that how does that make sense? In my head, it's it's kind of hard to wrap my head around uh, it just seems like a loop it has to do with the incentives and how those how uh, how different incentives are generated through the process let me give you myself for an example i went to graduate school at george mason university and earned a phd uh, i did so as a, a, a married man with children and i ended up taking out a lot of student loans to do that uh, this policy, once in place, uh, particularly given that I work at a state university, uh, is going to benefit me um, at first because I have student loans. My wife, 
wife has student loans and both of my daughters have student loans. Immediately, this policy benefits my family to the tune of $80,000, right? So I'm taking next year off. No, just kidding. <laughs> Most people are not going to do that. Most people are not going to say, oh, wow, I'm $80,000 well, more well off this year as a result of this policy than it was last year. That has to do with what Milton Friedman uh, Friedman uh, called um, life cycle uh, or um, per permanent income. So if, if, if people are given a lump sum of money all at once, and they don't expect for that lump sum to affect their lifetime wealth, but it's just a, a short-term uh, handout, oftentimes people will spend it all, all at once. But what Milton Friedman said was actually what people will do is they'll spread out that benefit over the rest of their lives. They won't try to just take a short-term big lump benefit. Instead, what they'll do is they'll squirrel it away and spread out that benefit over the rest of their lives. And we saw that in part during the pandemic with uh, the, the checks that the government handed out to people, that a lot of people put that money into savings and then gradually are spending it now that uh, the, the economy is open again. Those who spend it immediately are actually those who have short time horizons. And oftentimes those are people uh, who are not as wealthy or who have other reasons why they have a short time horizon. Uh, they can't see very far into the future. Giving them a lot of money all at once doesn't benefit them that much. So, so what's happened here is that uh, that my family has been benefited greatly, right? And as a result, um, I'm going to have more flexibility going forward. Um, I could probably more comfortably spend more money on different other things. I'm not who this policy was directly targeted at benefiting. I'm not the person who's supposed to benefit from this whole thing. I'm also qualified for income-based repayment, right? And and, and the, the income-based repayment qualifications went from 10% to 5%. Not only that, but I was told recently that the two and a half years during the um, pandemic that I was not making payments on my student loans, they're going to count that as if I was making payments on my student loans during that time frame. And so of the 10 years required for student loan forgiveness, I'm only going to have to pay for seven and a half years. And my payments are going to be half of what they were going to be before this program was put in place. Like on net, the total benefit to me of this program, is probably close to $100,000 just for me, not counting my family. So maybe $160,000 total benefit to me. Is this the kind of person that this policy was intended to benefit? No. And, and and the first day that I heard about this policy being put into place, I was talking to a colleague about it. And, and I was saying, you know what, if, if I were to take out a mortgage on my home tomorrow, then any money that I was paying towards interest on my mortgage would be deducted from my income. And as a result, based on my income-based repayment plan, my monthly payment would go down yet again. Was it an intended outcome of this policy that people like me would benefit in the first place and secondly, would go out and take a mortgage on their house and be benefited even more? Not at all. And so the unintended consequences of putting a new policy into place are always just always going to be there. Michael Munger, professor at Duke University, says you can't give money away 
because as soon as you talk about giving away money, people will find ways to game the system. And I asked my classes, you know, after describing all of that scenario, I said, so who do you think is going to try to game the system now that this policy is in place? And the correct answer is everyone. Everyone with means is going to try to game the system. Why have a system in place that encourages gaming? Is that the kind of society we want to encourage? One that is all about gaming the system to do better? Or do we want to encourage a system where innovation, creativity, hard work, responsibility, and diligence lead to real economic growth in the long run? Well, I can't answer that question as an economist. I can pose the question and, and hand it over to the public in discussion to say, okay, what do you all think? What is it that you all want? And in democracy, if, if we truly have governance by discussion, then hopefully we'll come to a consensus about this. But, but this policy was put into place without a robust discussion, without a robust conversation to put it into place. I, I'm sorry, I was a little bit all over the place there with that answer. No, you're good. That that really gets the 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 brain thinking 100 percent and just everything that was just said, uh, the people gaming the system potentially in like there's on and on. And then it was interesting to the fact that you talked about, um, well, if if I spread this money out and I, just one lump sum and I spread it out, well, I'm more willing to spend more now. So now there's a, an economic uh, growth uh, in a way, shape, or form potentially in the like in maybe I wanted to buy that uh, a new washer or a new dryer and now you got one and so like you're more willing to spend money now that you have more money uh, given to how much you have to pay on your loan. Um, but what do you think is the message for future? uh student loan borrowers and do you think people are now going to take extra loans out if they think they're going to get repaid uh and i may misunderstand the current um what's being done and it's only forgiveness for the current people right now but from what i thought was that is it i don't think it's recruiting is it or is it just now that this student loan forgiveness is going to be um in place until like and then it ends uh, what I understand is that this current policy is only affecting people who already have student loans. Now, gotcha. Well, I got. I how long out will that policy stay the same? Right. How long do we expect that to last? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, this this policy is in many ways a handout to some people. Maybe those people really needed that handout. I don't know. Right? That's a question, again, that has to be answered democratically, that we as a society ought to have a robust discussion about. Are there people who are truly suffering? Do we want to help them? Are we willing to incur a higher tax burden in order to do so? Perhaps yes. America is a very benevolent society. And there are many people within society that are willing to incur some costs to benefit others. And some of us are very wealthy and very uh, welcoming of opportunities to help others. However, this policy costs a lot of money and maybe it's not well targeted. Maybe it's not helping those people who need help the most. Will Luther, uh, a professor of economics in Florida and a former colleague of mine, you know, he, he said, what was it? Um, 
we want to help struggling Americans regardless of whether they have student loan debt. So is there a better way to identify people who are struggling and to include in the, the group that are struggling, both those that are struggling because of student loan debt and those that are struggling for other reasons? Is there a better way to help those people? This policy right, is very much targeted only at those who have student loan debt, many of whom are not suffering. Another way to game the system, right, is if I'm earning $125,000 a year, suppose I'm earning $125,001, right? I am all of a sudden not qualified for this program. Right? What might I do? I might take on one fewer clients, supposing I was a contract employee of some sort, right? Mm -hmm. I might even go to my boss and say, hey, could you cut my pay a little bit? Could I take some time off without pay? in order to get my income down just below that $125,000. And if I did that, all of a sudden, I'm qualified for a $2,000 bonus, right? Now, who is harmed by that? The taxpayer is harmed, right? I'm not harmed, but my client might be harmed. That one extra client that I don't help. In every exchange relationship, both parties benefit. And supposedly, whatever it is they're paying me, they'd be willing to pay more, right? But because of competition, I can only charge them less. They're harmed because they don't get to have my services, right? Suppose it's a surgeon who decides to do one less mm -hmm. surgery. He's not harmed. Who's harmed? The person who doesn't get the surgery that they need, right? These are all the kinds of unintended consequences. Poorly targeted programs you know, have a lot of extra costs. They're very politically expedient. They get passed through meetings and and uh, and debates quite quickly, but they're poorly targeted. A lot of the kinds of policies that have been imposed in the past several years have been poorly targeted. They've been very blunt instruments because the perception was something needs to be done and quickly. Right? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. And when we fall into this acceptance of something must be done and quickly, we lose our democracy. Right? We no longer participate in the discussion about what policies to put in place. We no longer have a long conversation about who's going to be benefited and who's going to be harmed. We no longer have a long discussion about who do we want to benefit. And actually what happens is that the debates that we do have become much more polarized and much more political in that sense, about partisan political. And then different parties, the, the different parties will just come at each other with wild debates and, and, and accusations that do not facilitate better governance going forward, but instead to deteriorate the quality of the discussion that we're having in democracy, such that it's more difficult to put in place good, reasonable policies that we would all agree to in the future. Right? My main concern with a, a policy like this, look, this is not the biggest policy that we've got to deal with. It is, it's out there, but it's not the most important necessarily thing. It's just a very illustrative of governance processes. It's illustrative of the current regime that we're in and the way things are going, right? And, and for those reasons, it's fun to talk about. But, mm -hmm. but my main concern is, are we preserving our democracy? How are we going to move forward with that? What's the student today going to do? I don't know. I don't know if the average college student today thinks that Right, they're going to get bailed out for their student loans. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what they should plan on. 
you know, are they going to get stuck holding not only the bag for their own student loans, but also the, the bag for my student loans, because they're going to ones who have to pay higher taxes in the future. I don't know. You know, I don't know. We, we, we tend to discount how things are going to affect our children and grandchildren. Uh, those are interesting questions. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's, yeah, that's an interesting perspective in the fact, and that's one of the things I, I really took away from your classroom was the fact when you tax the rich, what does that really mean once they get up to that bracket or they can't meet this certain incentive after making so much money? And it's like, well, you have the people are getting hurt. Now the surgeon isn't performing one more surgery because now he falls into that that bracket. And I, I always found that interesting to the fact that it's it's hurting people and how the how the dominoes fall or it goes really deep down into thinking of how it's going to affect the economy as a whole. Now that you have one doctor doing that and he's doing one or 10 less surgeries now, the fact that, well, there's multiple doctors doing that. And then the prices raise up due to having less, there's a, a higher demand and lower supply. Um, so it's really affecting the people uh, that potentially are, are trying to, uh, are the ones who need help and hurting them I guess the opportunity cost is, is it hurting them more? Is it helping them more uh, now that we have this? Uh, and then there's more and things that are trying to help them with this student loan forgiveness, so on and so forth. But I, I found an interesting perspective and I found, I found a, I came across this, this video of this scenario and I would like to tell it and then get your perspective on it. So a hardworking family works double shifts, budgets, AKA does it right for a long time to put Susie through college. And then they do this and they don't get their funds paid back due to this incentives. And so do you think people will work less hard given that, and to pay for their child, given that uh, there's this incentive and maybe they think that there's gonna be another one in the future or would uh, this potentially mean overall, you think people, I guess it, on a long scale, would people work less because, and the reason I think that this would affect is because 63.1 billion or million parents are have kids under the age of 18. And also according to uh, Sally Millery's uh, national college study, she roughly, uh, she roughly found that 80, roughly 85% of parents help uh, their, their kids with college a little bit. Um, so I think there's like a huge thing that could happen here. But what are your thoughts on that scenario and like people working hard and then paying it off with the actual money they earn instead of getting a, uh, a loan? What do you think about that? There's resentment, right? People are like, hey, I did it the right way. Uh, and, and now I'm not getting the benefit. Uh, there's going to be resentment for that. Um, what, what can you do about that, right? There, there's resentment towards people who make poor choices and are benefited by government programs. Um, that's that's common. That's a problem that we all face in a democracy where where there are transfer programs in place. Uh, the The challenge uh, of maintaining um, a norm of personal responsibility is is difficult to maintain, and there are a lot of different opinions about about how much is based on personal responsibility, how much is based on hard knocks, and people just had had a bad time. Maybe they were unlucky in whatever circumstances. Maybe 
maybe, you know, this one household worked hard and was successful and got lucky and were able to put their kids through school. Another couple worked just as hard, right? Um, had a hard time of it, got unlucky, took out student loans, and now their child's going to be benefited by this program. I, it, that's something that people have to talk about and, and work out with one another. There's going to be resentment, though, uh, and that's going to affect our political situation. Would I be willing to donate money towards a scholarship for a student who maybe isn't the top student, but who would benefit from a college education? Yeah, I'd be willing to donate to such a program. How many other people would be? Many. But oftentimes when the government internalizes that charity, right, it discourages charity in the private sector. It discourage it, it, it crowds out the opportunity for people who would give money to give money meaningfully. Um, it, and it it says, well, why would I give to that if somebody else already has? So there's there's like two sets of opportunity costs, right? You, you're taking away um, uh, the opportunity for um, philanthropy in a particular sector. So then that's going to shift the direction of philanthropy. Then there's also the opportunity cost of, well, what, where's this money going? And how does the government know that this is the best use of that money? So, so, okay, suppose it's $300 billion. That's on the low end of the estimated cost of this particular policy. Suppose it's $300 billion. If, if you were benevolent king of the world, <laughs> where's, where's $300 billion most needed right now? Right. And, and would it be college graduates or people who have had some college in the United States or are there other people elsewhere in the world? Oh, I don't know. Let's consider, um, you know, Pakistan that's basically underwater right now, right? Would some of that $300 billion find more, more philanthropic effectiveness, right? If, if applied to Pakistan rather than to me, possibly yes. Will I be able to be more charitable with my money now that I've been bailed out? Yes. Will everybody do that? I don't know. It's up to them, right? The last thing that I need to mention in this, though, is that, well, it's not the last thing. We can continue the conversation. But oftentimes in my classes, I talk about taxes and subsidies. And, and subsidies are paid for by the government. Students usually can get that part of the answer right. Well, who pays for government taxes? When we subsidize something, we have to pay more for it than what the person who receives that thing is willing to pay themselves. Now, when it comes to something like a vaccine, we might, we might be willing to pay more for a vaccine than a person uh, is willing to pay themselves because we all benefit when somebody else has a vaccine. And maybe a college education is the same kind of thing. Maybe if a, if a young person receives a college education, they end up being more productive and in the way that benefits all of us. In that case, we all might be willing to chip in to help pay for a college student to receive more money. However, in general, a subsidy provides more money for something than what that person is willing to pay for themselves. So there's a waste of resources from an economic point of view. That's the first half of a problem with a subsidy. And this Forgiveness, loan forgiveness is basically a subsidy in many ways. The second half of it is that it has to be paid for by taxes. And taxes not only are costly to consumers and to workers, 
but they also generate deadweight losses. They foreclose upon opportunities for exchanges that would uh, generate mutual benefit. And, and those deadweight losses are not accounted for economically in any way. They can't be counted. It's outside of what our statisticians can truly calculate. The deadweight losses are a harm on everyone and, and they can't be calculated. So there's a, a dual inefficiency in, in, in a subsidy that's, that's even more um, consequential than just a tax by itself. So the question always has to be for the people who are in a democracy discussing these issues, do we want to fund this program and help those people? Are we willing to, do we think that we're going to get something from it? And secondly, are we willing to incur the full costs, which include both wasted resources and deadweight losses, both on the subsidy side and the tax side? Are we able to fully account for the real costs of this? And then the, 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 the other part was, is this the best use of the money? There isn't an infinite amount of money in the world. Right? When we think about government funding things, we're like, oh, the government can spend money here and the government can spend money there as if there's an infinite amount of it, as if there isn't a budget. Right? There's not an infinite amount of resources. You can, we can print money. We can have an infinite amount of money, but, but there's, an, there's a limited amount of resources in the world. That's just a fact of scarcity. Right? And we can always imagine having more. But, but is this the best use of the resources that we have? Is this where, what I, where I would spend that money? And have we had the opportunity to have a robust discussion about where to spend the money? I don't think so. Yeah, that's good. I really like that. Uh, man, that's just such an interesting perspective, especially with like Pakistan what, or where we could put the money it just anywhere else in general. What's the best place for $300 billion uh, on the low end of the minimum of this cost of the, the student aid? Uh, and I think uh, that opportunity cost, man, I'm always thinking of opportunity cost, this versus this and how it's effective. And I always thought it was interesting to the fact that you it's it's really hard to know until it plays out and you see what's happening. Uh, people can guess all this and that, this and that. And you're like, uh, you don't at the end of the day, um, it's like you don't know 100 percent until it plays out uh, and what will happen. Uh, will that doctor take that one more procedure or will he not? What's what's the across the board? What is the majority of the people doing? I always thought it was an interesting perspective. But do you think this forgiveness fund is help is helping hide the elephant in the room, which in my head is that the college tuition is rising 18 percent compared to uh, today compared to 2010 to 2011? Getting a college education is a, is a complicated thing. Uh, there are those who think that a college education should always pay for itself in an instrumental way. That you shouldn't get a college education unless it helps to improve your income and helps you to earn more in the long run. But I believe that the liberal arts are an important investment in society. Uh, I often tell people that that my courses and courses in political economy that are offered at Ball State University within uh, the economics department, often affiliated with uh, what we call the Institute for the Study of Political Economy. Those classes are kind of like the liberal arts classes 
within the school of business. These are the classes that help you to be a better citizen. And, and those are the kinds of things that we try to focus on. I believe in liberal arts education, but often it doesn't pay off in instrumental terms. You don't end up getting more money because you've had a liberal arts education, not necessarily. So then is it important to get a liberal arts education or a business education? The tuition going up over time is in part reflective of the sorting that happens after college. When a student graduates and, and is looking for a job, college graduates tend to earn roughly $30,000 more a year than people who don't graduate from college on average. That's a big chunk of change, right? Mm -hmm. $30,000 is a huge amount of money, okay? So earning $30,000 a year more after college, would that make, make $120,000 in student debts worthwhile? Yeah, probably. What if you study something that's not worthwhile? Like liberal arts, not worthwhile. Well, does it benefit our society? Maybe it does. Maybe the externalities, the positive externalities for the rest of us, for, for having somebody who did study the liberal arts are so great that we would be willing to subsidize that education. I probably would be. The rising cost of tuition is complicated because at the same time as tuition has been going up, there have been more subsidies. There's been easier access to loans. And additionally, universities have a lot more discretion about what amount of financial aid is offered to different candidates. So some students, the price tag of going to a university might be $30,000 a year, right? Some students don't receive any financial aid. They're going to pay the full $30,000 a year. Some students receive all different kinds of financial aid. Maybe their out-of-pocket costs are $5,000 a year as a result, right? That is called price discrimination by economists, and it tends to get more people to go to college than otherwise would. It's not a good thing or a bad thing necessarily. It just means that more people go to college than otherwise would. And in Indiana today, for example, it might be a really important thing to get more people to go to college, right? We, we have a, a, a very low share of, of uh, young people getting college degrees. Subsidizing things does cause the price of it to go up, but at the same time, right, we're offering lots of different kinds of financial aid packages to do it. I, I don't know how to completely sort it out. Um, I think that some people are complaining that there's a lot of moralistic arguments going on around this issue, as there ought to be. This is a moral question, right? I can't answer the moral question as an economist. I can lay out the opportunity costs and then leave it to the public to decide amongst themselves the different morality points of view on this. For example, right? One point of view says, moralistically, you shouldn't go to college unless you earn something that's worth it. Right. And so then we would exclude most of liberal arts. I think that that's not wise. Right. So one moralistic point of view says uh, that it, that I didn't get benefited from this because I didn't go to college or I paid for it myself. And so there's a, an equality point of view on it. OK, well, those things need to be sorted out. Uh, another moralistic point of view I've, I've read in some circles is, 
um, would Jesus have forgiven uh, student loans, right? Conflating religion with politics, uh, which I think is yeah. is dangerous. Um, I happen to be a person of faith and and I take my faith very seriously. Uh, but I think that saying, you know, Jesus would have forgiven college loans is 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 is, a, is an error in understanding at multiple levels, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so 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 what it, what is important is to 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 try to get the facts and, and identify the real opportunity costs. And again, that requires time and a discussion, and that hasn't happened. Yeah, 100%. So what I've kind of gained from this is, you're, it, what would you say you believe the student loan forgiveness? Do you, do you believe, as of right now, although we don't know the uh, complete factors because it hasn't gone into play just yet with the applications opening beginning of October, I believe, um, do you think the student loan forgiveness is overall a, a good idea? Or would you say that it's, I mean, it might be hard to answer that because you don't know what's, how it's going to play out. But in your head right now, what would you say? Would you say it's a good idea? I'd say it's a, a poorly targeted policy that has a lot of secondary consequences that we haven't talked about sufficiently whether we as a polity want to 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 implement this particular policy hasn't been asked of us it's been brought to us and said here this is what's going to happen it's not democratic uh, for those reasons for those reasons i'm skeptical of this policy it has nothing to do with the details of the policy right it has to do with the process of the policy this could be the best policy there is I don't know. Why $125,000 threshold? Why not $80,000 threshold for income for a single person? $160,000 for a couple. Is it because people in Washington, D.C. are out of touch with incomes around the country? They think, oh, everybody earns $100,000 a year. I don't know. Is it, um, you know, what other kinds of things could happen here? I, I don't know. Um, why why, uh, why $20,000? instead of $30,000 or instead of $5,000. What kinds of political bargaining was going on in the back rooms in order to arrive at the particular set of numbers that have been selected? And why wasn't I included in the conversation? Why weren't you included in the conversation? Why was it done in the back room and handed, us, handed to us all, all at once? Why wasn't there a big, robust conversation about this? Why is it being done through the executive instead of through Congress. That seems dangerous to me too. Is this an out, an overstepping of the executive branch's authority? Uh, have we given everything over to the executive? Um, would Congress have been able to come up with a solution? Is, is politics so toxic in America that Congress is ineffective? And so we end up turning to the executive and the battle for power and control of the executive becomes much more important. These are all long-term big issue questions rather than, oh, here's a policy about student loans. Those bigger picture questions are what's really important to me, which is why I, I, I relish the opportunity to be an instructor, to bring these questions to the front of students' minds and to be able to bring these questions to the public through outlets like this podcast. Absolutely. Man, yeah, that's, 
that goes really in depth. And I think the numbers are, yeah, I, I guess like is Washington DC out of touch with like the 120,000 or 125,000. It just seemed like that, that number was pretty high. And then 200 and I guess it was 125 and there was 250,000 with uh, a family uh, income, household income. Uh, I, I was like, it's kind of blown away. That seems like a lot of money uh, to be making and $10,000 helping someone uh, that, that being one twelfth of their income uh, is like, is that is that really helping the person that is making one hundred and ten thousand or one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year versus yeah like you said I feel like it could have been targeted just a little bit better is there data in the background that we don't see it's like well did you know that uh people with uh that make one hundred twenty thousand uh, dollars of income have the most debt in the world or something like that I I don't know I don't have that uh, that data uh, and I guess it would be um, what was that word we used in your classroom? Uh, irrationally ignorant, rationally ignorant. Rationally the fact ignorant. that you don't yeah. research. Yes, so the, I remember uh, that. The, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, which may be biased, so take this with a grain of salt, but they, they report that um, people whose incomes are less than $20,000 uh, represent about 50% of the people who owe, um, who owe student debt. But the total amount of student debt that they owe is only 13% of the total student debt. People who earn $100,000 or more represent 7% of the people who owe student debt, but they hold 38% of the debt. Right? So, so how do we do this better? Maybe there should be a sliding scale for who gets forgiven how much of the debt. Maybe uh, maybe we say okay, you know, anybody under anybody earning under twenty thousand dollars, we're going to forgive up to twenty thousand dollars of your student debt. That makes basic sense to me. That that I can I can get behind pretty quickly. But from there on up, maybe maybe we we scale it back some, right? If you're earning sixty thousand dollars a year, maybe we offer to cover fifteen thousand dollars a year, and so on and so forth. Like make it progressive the way our yeah. income taxes are. The current setup yeah, isn't progressive like at all. A it's, just blunt, it's just a blunt instrument, right? With certain thresholds that invite all kinds of gaming, right? It, it's mm -hmm. it's a blunt instrument. Yeah, that yeah, and I'm surprised they didn't go more specific in the terms of like a tax bracket or like literally what you were saying with the slider. Like you get more money the the less money you make versus. Um, but then I guess would have gone into play, um, the income discrimination or what, what was the word you just said? Oh, price uh, discrimination. Yeah. 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 So would you think would that play into it if they did have the price scale? It just makes it harder to sell, right? Yeah. It just makes it harder to sell to the public. Um, yeah. people want something simple and basic they can get behind or not get behind. Uh, they want they like blunt instruments oftentimes because, you know, the, it's easy to understand and they know whether they're in or they're out, right? The amount of time that people are going to spend, there's another, another opportunity cost, right? The amount of time that people are going to spend trying to figure out how to game this system 
is all time that they could have spent being productive in some other way. Our society is poorer to some extent by the amount of time that people spend gaming on this. Actually, the very fact that we're spending an hour talking about this is an hour of lost productivity <laughs> for both yes. of us on some other margin. Now, I, I'm using it to teach basic economic principles, so I think there's positive externalities from this, right? But you know, if, if you're not learning some economics by listening to this, turn it off, go to work, make money, right? <laughs> <laughs> That that's my big picture part. <laughs> that's how I like to think about. It. <laughs> that's that's funny. Well, through this tool, the podcast, it's able to display information to people that maybe didn't go to college and didn't have this chance to hear about economics or um, just in general in depth. And maybe even if it's not the student loan forgiveness, the opportunity cost in which they learned. And then I guess raising our productivity a little bit because we help this person. What if this person becomes this person and this person because it all started on this podcast and them learning about economics. This kid in, was senior year and now he, he changed his major uh, to be uh, senior year of high school. Now he changes major to be economics because, and now he becomes this scholarly economics person. And, but I guess there's a lot of opportunity costs. Don't, be an, don't become um, an economist. It's almost certainly a waste of time, uh, <laughs> but do instead, <laughs> do instead become informed, right? You mentioned uh, rational ignorance a little while ago. So mm -hmm. it's a topic that we, we discussed in my, in, in my intro macro classes, rational ignorance means basically that, you don't have an incentive to be well-informed about the public policies and shifts that are happening out there because your getting involved is unlikely to change the outcome, right? And I tell people that voting is the least costly way of participating in a democracy. It shouldn't be surprising to you that it's also the least effective way to participate in a democracy. To be more effective about how our, our, our polity is governed, both at the local and the national level, right? To be more effective, you would do a little bit of research on something and understand it well and engage in the discussion about that policy. Learn something about it and become engaged. You're more likely to have an impact on the outcome of, of what kinds of policies get in, put in place by writing a letter to the editor than you are by voting. And actually, I think that a letter to the editor is probably worth 100 votes, right? I think that Teaching an economics class is probably worth thousands of votes. Not that I'm trying to win elections here, because I don't vote myself, right? I'm 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 objective about that with regard to to partisan politics. Okay. A better way to participate is to become involved in some way. Start at the local level. Go to a local meeting, uh, a city board meeting, a council, a county council meeting. Right. Pay attention. Ask hard questions. In particular, ask, how much is that going to cost, right? Become a part of this civil conversation. That's what will preserve democracy in the long run. That's how we even discover what it is that we collectively want and voice it to those who are making decisions for the rest of us. That's the most important thing you can do. Um, what, so, Man, that got me thinking because I remember learning that uh, that was like a flashback. I remember in your class and how we could be more effective uh, in a democracy. Um, but what what I'm what I'm thinking uh, now and before we uh, start ending the going towards the end of the podcast, uh, what what short term effect do you think could play again? And I know there's so many opportunity costs and there's a lot of things that can happen. But what do you think? 
is the, the best odds of playing out within the short-term effect of the student loan forgiveness. We'll see a slight uptick in inflation. Uh, we, meet, we may see some crowding out in, um, well, this might actually loosen investment markets. That's an interesting outcome I hadn't thought of. Um, we will see uh, perhaps a slight stimulative effect from people spending a little bit more, but not as big as people would expect it to be. Um, well, otherwise, I don't know. I don't really know very much. Um, I, I hope that my, my best hope would be that people realize that this is poor governance. Even if it's a good thing to do, the approach that was taken to get here, that was poor governance and that they'll get more involved or at least more skeptical. Um, but otherwise, it, it, everybody who thinks they know exactly what the consequences are going to be, don't. <laughs> mm -hmm. they, they don't know. I, I'm going to be, you know, I'm not going to exercise that hubris. And, and I would caution anybody who does that you don't you can't know that yet. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to wait and see. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's. Yeah. And that's at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, what I was saying and I learned from you is the fact that you, you really don't know what you don't know until it happens type of ordeal. Um, of course, there can be good guesses and educations, but I mean, we couldn't even uh, there's been times where we thought we were going to have a recession in COVID and then we didn't end up having a recession and then stimulus checks, what was being happened. Like we didn't know what was going to happen. Who, I mean, we knew who it was going to benefit. A lot of people benefited from the stimulus check, but then like when it went into play, what did it do? Did it really help? Did people save? Uh, it's just all the interesting effects and opportunity cost, uh, which mean, I mean, you just sit here and think about the complete, the millions of things that can outplay uh, in the unique circumstance that we are currently at, like with the given inflation that we currently have, or pe people are just going to keep it and save it, or what's the, the mainstream mindset to all of this and how it's going to play out, I always thought was interesting. Um, but Let me what, what do you think? Yeah, go ahead. Well, let me let me kind of wrap up on a more optimistic note. Okay, I've got a brother-in-law who uh, who is a broker for uh, insurance companies, small mom and pop insurance companies, right? With mergers and acquisitions, and every time he buys or sells a, a small insurance company, uh, the system becomes more efficient. The provision of insurance becomes less expensive in the long run, right? More people get insured. It's, it's a system that allows everybody to benefit more in the long run. I asked him one day, how, how many more years of business of just buying and selling insurance companies is there out there? He said, at least 20 years. There's 20 years worth of inefficiencies currently existing in the insurance company market. That's amazing, right? We will continue to see the economy grow from simple op opportunities to improve efficiencies for, 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 for those reasons. We will also continue to see the economy grow because of innovation and technological growth. We will also continue to see the economy grow as freedom expands around the world and markets become more open 
particularly if we allow freedom of migration, if people are more able to move across borders easily, we should see the global economy grow faster. Right? And it's better to have rich neighbors than poor neighbors. I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic in the long run about human ingenuity, about what Julian Simon called the, the scarcest resource, which is people. And that as people are free and, and are given opportunities to exercise their creativity, right, that we will continue to see flourishing and prospering grow. It doesn't all have to be captured in terms of higher levels of GDP. A lot of it's going to be captured in increased amounts of leisure, higher quality of life in a variety of different ways, right? I'm optimistic about that in the long run. In the short run, I'm pessimistic about the, the direction governance is going, right? And really poor governance could actually get us into trouble, right? Um, there's, a, there's a new theory of economic growth that, that says that it's not necessarily that some countries had uh, economic growth while other countries didn't, but instead it says many countries experienced economic growth only a few went backwards because of bad governance systems, right? I am I'm very concerned about bad governance. In bad, by bad governance, what I mostly mean is some people are excluding other people from the conversation and the long-term consequences of a policy are not well thought out and presented to the public for discussion. Those are the things that are most concerning to me, but I am optimistic long run. I'm optimistic as particularly when I speak with young people like yourself who are moving forward and creating new ideas. I'm optimistic when I, when I go into the classroom and people are engaged. I'm optimistic when I meet entrepreneurs on the street. And there's a guy here in Muncie, Bill Lett, who's, who's buying some property close to the river on, uh, uh, on the east side of town and developing it in a beautiful way, right? I'm optimistic when I meet those kinds of guys, particularly when they say that they are trying not to receive subsidies for what they're doing. They're trying to do it themselves. There's a lot of get-go, a lot of ingenuity, a lot of that kind of spirit. Some people call it the American spirit. I think it's the human spirit and not a particularly American one. Those kinds of things make me optimistic. Is getting a good education part of doing that? Sometimes, yeah, depending on what you want to do. Um, sometimes you need to get a good education to get there. Uh, so, so do we want to help people to do that? Yeah, it, we probably do. How? Well, that's more complicated. Yeah, hundred percent. Is there is there any remarks that uh, you haven't made that you would like to make uh, on the topic or just in general? Um, yeah, I think we covered most of it. Um, to to the person who's listening to this and has listened and has um, read a lot about the issue, hopefully this will um, cause you to rethink through some of the foundations behind those points of view. You know, I've got the stack of stuff that I read here to prepare for this conversation today, and the other things that I've been listening to and learning about. Um. Uh, become well-informed, but think about it bigger picture. And thanks. Yeah, absolutely. And before we head out, do you have any book or podcast recommendations, maybe something that you've read um, or heard that you think people should listen to? I think that in this time period right now, we're dealing with uh, the problems of inflation and this thing in policies like this student loan uh, issue. I'd recommend you, you, you try to find Will Luther on Twitter uh, and online, he he writes about these issues um, quite perceptively. Uh, he has a lot of great stuff. Um, 
But I, I'd also encourage you to read broadly, to read people who you disagree with and to consider their arguments carefully, to understand their point of view, to read past like the, the language that they use. Then they try to frame an issue in terms of a progressive angle or a conservative angle. Try to read past that and try to understand the fundamentals of the issues that they're talking about so you can really understand well and, and make an informed decision or, or point of view that way. Um, try to read past uh, the, the political language. And for that, I'd recommend the book Arnold by Arnold Kling, Three Languages of Politics, that will help you to understand how to read past political rhetoric uh, to get at actual issues. Mm. That, that, and that's interesting. I, I happened to pass a lawyer uh, and talk to him, and he said, for everything that you agree with, for the things you disagree with, you should know twice as much information on and be able to well construct a conversation around your disagreement. Absolutely. And for that, you should go back to John Stuart Mill on liberty. Absolutely. He who does not understand the opposing point of view doesn't really know where his know his own very well. I'm botching that, but yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, this is going to be wrapping up the Redefine Relentless. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Dr. Snow, and we will see you sometime in the near future, I assume. All right, my office door is often open. Come on by. I will do. This has been the Redefine Relentless podcast. Catch you guys later. And that's the last you saw of them. You got it?